Welcome to Think Yourself Healthy Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Duranja. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, cognitive behavior specialist, personal trainer, and recovering perfectionist turned professional half-asser. Thanks for being here and for taking the journey with me from surviving to thriving. Let's dive in with today's episode. everybody. On today's show of Think Yourself Healthy, I have a very special guest with us. Her name is Busy Gold. She's one of the world's top personal development and wellness experts. Busy Gold has appeared on the Dr. Oz Show, Today, E! Extra, Home and Family, Bethany, ABC News, and NBC to discuss her unique approach to sustainable transformation that has garnished widespread Hollywood praise. Past clients include Julia Roberts, Jennifer uh, Love Hewitt, just to name a few. Gold's off-the-cuff humor and focus on diligent accountability helps clients achieve striking breakthroughs in record time. An industry disruptor to the core, Gold is bulldozing the model of coaching that finally preys on, financially preys on countless people across the globe, replacing it with a sustainable model that puts the client's swift breakthrough at the forefront of all sessions. Wow, that is an impressive intro. Congratulations on all of your accolades, and I truly appreciate you being here today with us to uh, chat with the audience about some of my absolute favorite topics. We're going to discuss cognitive dissonance and emotional repatterning and conscious behaviors, all the good stuff. So thank you, Busy, for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, of course. It's my pleasure. So you've been at this for a while. Um, my my uh, following of you, I see that you have kind of um, pivoted your business model and um, message. So kind of tell us where you're at in, in your process right now. Um, what are you focusing on? Well, I am the founder of Booty Yoga. So that was really where I first think came into the public eye. And I've since sold that company along with the supplement company that I started and the yoga apparel line. So those are all owned by another group of amazing women and I still consult with them. But now I'm really able to focus on what was always kind of my passion project, which was break method. So now I get to focus on break method 100% of my time. And then obviously also I'm a mama too. So now I get to do break method and really be much more present as a parent with my kids and focus on also my podcast. So now I get to do the things that I love versus the things that started to turn into basically administrative office work that was starting to really drain my battery. Well, good for you. I have to applaud you and commend you on your ability to detach and let something go um, that you know was such a passion project for you. I'm sure you spent many years lots of time, energy, and resources invested into that business. Um, And a lot of times it's very difficult for us to walk away from things when they're no longer serving us because we think of of those initial investments and we're like, but we got to defend that, right? I got to stick behind this business no matter what. It's my passion. So um, congratulations to you. Was that an easy decision or something you kind of struggled with? 
Oh, I, I mean, I built the company to sell it. So selling it actually for me wasn't really letting it go. It was a big win for me. So um, I would say that was probably a, a huge turning point in my life because I had spent 10 years working to sell the company. It was never my intention to own a company that large. Um, as my kids got older, I always would tell my kids like mommy's busting ass right now so that once you guys are in like first, second, third grade, I can actually be a lot more present. And I really was working so hard when they were very young that I just wasn't around for much of those little experiences, the school drop-offs, the school pickups, the, you know, graduation parties, Halloween celebrations. I got to, I didn't really get to attend any of those things. So now I get to make up for lost time and it's been a year already of getting to do that and it's quite amazing I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world oh that's absolutely beautiful very very beautiful I love that I fortunately got to be a stay-home mom with my children when they were young and those first 14 years of their lives um it was just beautiful so I can understand you know the importance of wanting to fulfill that um as as a mother role so that's beautiful and I'm grateful that you have the option to do that now so yeah me too thank you so with that being said that kind of takes me right into wanting to talk about how our childhood experiences create the subconscious operating script for our daily behavior as adults so let's kind of talk about that how does this happen um most of the listeners maybe have a general idea of this concept, but um, you do such a beautiful job of explaining it in a way that I think is consumer friendly. So I'm going to let you take it away. So yeah, your brain's job is essentially to be the computer that learns rules about how you interact with your environment and keep yourself safe in that environment. And if we all try to go back into the memory banks of childhood, For most of us, it took a long time for us to have any sort of autonomy or say in what we could or couldn't do, which by nature means that we are essentially emotional prisoners to however our parents decide to do things. And I think this is where people sometimes get tripped up with the kind of societal excuses of like, oh, well, they were doing the best they could. You know, they had it so hard. They were poor, you know my parents split up, all these excuses that really don't take away from the fact that your brain isn't experiencing your environment with these excuses in mind, right? It's not like, well, this is the rule, but let me pause and give this context. The brain doesn't have the ability to do that. It's very black and white. So it serves us a lot better to look at this sort of patterning experience in simple terms of input-output and kind of move those societal excuses, if you will, out of the equation, at least in the beginning, so that we can really assess what the pattern is. So essentially what these patterns are, we refer to them as source belief patterns and break method. It's essentially a two-part system where your brain initially responds to any sort of adverse stimuli in its environment, and then it adapts to create a rule on how to then survive that stimuli repetitively, because you can't, as a child, usually avoid it, right? You can you can try to people please, you can try to hide from your parents, you can try to jump all these different hurdles to try to figure out what your parents mean when they're disciplining you and you don't get it. But there's only so much you can do because you are under the care of your parents and you can't just walk out and leave. 
So because of that, we end up having these repetitive experiences that end up creating a pattern that then our rule, our brain uses as a rule for how to operate in our life here to forward. And unfortunately, most adults don't realize that this same childhood rule is still affecting how they're perceiving their environment, how they're choosing their responses, how they're responding emotionally. All of it is completely compromised until you stop, assess what the pattern is and actively rewire it so that you can now respond to your present environment. Because until you do that, you'll always be responding to your present through a glasses lens of your past. And there's just, unfortunately, no way around it. Mm -hmm. Do you think most people are aware that they're operating from this state or is it just kind of this naive denial that they're walking around and not even realizing? I would give you a solid 99% of people have no idea. And in fact, usually at least, you know, arc four months long, there's usually like a two week arc where there's the the stubborn person that's like, yeah, right. Mm-hmm, yeah, you're really going to fix me. And then two weeks in, they're like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, that I see that now. Because it's been you for so long. And every year that you've been alive on planet Earth, all you've done is reinforce it and embody it more. So you can't yet differentiate the pattern versus you because you have become the pattern. So there's a very specific process by which we lovingly and with accountability to teach you how to dissociate from this pattern and it can feel really uncomfortable and really triggering and it inevitably brings up some pretty yucky things about how you've been interacting with people and living your life Mm -hmm. that you probably wish that you could undo or had undone sooner Mm -hmm. but it just was the way the cookie crumbles and we teach you how to reconcile that without falling down the guilt and shame spiral and having the skills to actually move forward and rewire it so that you can not live your life that way anymore. Right. That's beautiful. So do you think that there's, you know, if 99.9% of us are walking around, we're completely naive, unaware of our own patterns and behaviors, how does that 0.1%, what is it that specifically, um, have you noticed any like patterns or like some sort of similarities of something that happens in their life that causes them to be like that have that wake up and realize oh shit I've got to start taking responsibility for me and becoming mindful and aware and recognizing yeah that's kind of the thing here is that I honestly am not even sure if the that point one naturally arrives at that place Like there has to be some sort of disruptive moment where you're actually choosing Mm -hmm. to see it. Otherwise you just won't see it. So this can happen to some people through some sort of um, intense spiritual awakening where it's almost like you feel your consciousness kind of fracture and you honestly become an observer, not by choice, but all of a sudden you're like, what is this thing that's happening? Um, That's what happened to me, which I know has happened to a few other people where i quite literally just one day started to hear the me that was observing and basically judging the way I was living my life versus the me that was actually doing the things. And it was really jarring. It first started to happen when I was about 22, 23. It was so intense. And at the time I was a, um, I was the host of a TV show on Fox sports. I was a commentator. So I'd be like, 
doing all this commentating on the side of the field, but internally I'd be trying to focus on what's happening, but I would be hearing one track of what is their, their judgment of what's happening while also trying to live my life and do the commentating. And eventually I was like, I need a timeout. Something's very wrong. Um, but it was honestly exactly the process that had to happen for me to be able to uncover what break method is and how it works. Mm -hmm. So without that, that sort of esoteric or spiritual, magical, whatever you want to call it, interrupting moment, I don't even think that it would have happened to me. Um, and like I said, it was not comfortable and it took honestly a solid 10 years to try to actually figure out how to use it productively instead of let it make me even more anxious and fractured. So um, I think there are some people that have that, you know, whatever that thing is that happens to them from some sort of external disruptive force. But most people have to be in enough pain mm -hmm. that they're willing to say like, okay, something's got to be wrong here. And the only common denominator is me. So maybe I should figure out what that is. Right. Um, so I feel like it has to be something where you basically raise your own hand and you're like, I don't know what it is, but I'm clearly doing something wrong. So I should probably work on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, unfortunately that's just, it's the way, it's the way it is. And yeah. I mean, that's exactly the way it happened for me. It was very similar around 25. I just started realizing, wait, what, what is happening here? And kind of mm. stepping back and, and observing and recognizing things that just didn't feel right. And that's where that kind of journey began. Uh, but no one told me how lonely and crazy and like scary. And I mean, there were suicidal moments where I'm like, what the fuck? Like, is this really what this is supposed to be? It's so lonely. And well, and you're, it, feels like, it feels if you're doing it correctly, it feel when I say dissociative, it literally is like your consciousness is fracturing into separate parts because in order to actually separate from the pattern and rewire the pattern, Obviously, on one hand, there needs to be some sort of mindfulness where you're observing your behavior, but then there needs to be another portion of that where it's not just observing the behavior, it's actually separating out the behavior part of you that is reacting from the part of you that just is and is processing. So right. that feels very crazy. It feels like you're taking crazy pills for a while. Yes. And it can be lonely because it's really challenging to talk about that with other people without them, you know, feeling like you probably need to go to the loony bit. Right. Well, but this is, this is why this process really needs to be normalized. And I think if we were to go back, indigenous cultures had a way of doing this through vision quest and medicine ceremonies where it's like, you're actually thrust upon you this opportunity to literally go break apart your consciousness and figure out where you have to let childhood go and keep moving. And we just let all of those practices go. Yeah. Well, not only do we let those practices go, but then also we suppress all of the emotional junk that's happened all over the years. We never really question any of that content that we have absorbed and we adapt it as our identity. And then as we start questioning this identity as this observer, we realize, oh shit, there's parts of me that are no longer that I identify with. And that's a frightening place to be. That's where, you know, we can talk more about cognitive dissonance and how that comes in to uh, try to, you know, shift us back over to that safety zone. Um, 
But anyway, I think that it's important that we talk about this because there's such a, I see such a uh, huge movement, this, this really big consciousness waking that's happening with individuals and they're really questioning their realities and their lives. And I see them take steps forward with wanting to make progress and then they get stuck. They are sucked back into that healing loop and then, you know, they're back on that self-sabotage wheel and stuck in that that place. And it's um, a very, you know, it's a disheartening place to be because you feel like, gosh, I want this so bad and I'm trying to do the work, but then boom, the barriers step in and knock you back into that, that you know, negative healing loop. So um, let's talk about what emotional addiction cycles are. I know this is something I didn't realize um, was so innately ingrained in me. And um, I literally, you know, defended it with my life, even though it wasn't serving me until I was able to push through that cognitive dissonance and get over to the other side. So let's talk about that. So similar to the belief pattern, which is how your brain is going to make a snap judgment about what your environment means and how you interact with your environment in a safe way, keeping in mind that safety to your brain just means known cause and effect, right? It's repeated enough cycles that it can say, if X, then Y. That's all safety really means. So for you and everybody else, safety actually probably means heartbreak, letdown, chaos, right? All these actually negative things, but because your brain knows if we put an X, then Y happens, it perceives safety so long as that thing is not death. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we look at it from the belief pattern side, that's how the brain is trying to define, right. And the rules of the definition versus when we look at it from the emotional addiction cycle, it's how these definitions then trigger a chemical response in our body. That is the next step in line to shift and actually interact with that source belief pattern to keep driving our behavior in the cycle forward. So the source belief pattern really works in tandem with the emotional addiction cycle. It's one of the things that we map out to a very high degree in break methods that we can see not just how these two patterns function independently, but how they function together in the environment and map every single trigger system and how the trigger system ties back to each phase of these cycles. So the emotional addiction cycle, like we talked about with source belief, which in break speak, we say has an origin and an adaptive belief. With the emotional addiction cycle, most people have a three-part cycle, which will start with the origin, which is that just initial snapshot response to something that creates a a pain or an adverse reaction, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that's important to keep in mind here is that a child comes into the world embodying like the Taoist philosophy refers to as the poo, right? The uncarved block of wood. So the uncarved block of wood doesn't yet really understand sadness, anger, frustration, why mom would yell or dad would hurt mom, right? None of these things come into play. You're just this uncarved block of wood. So there's a high level of innocence very low level of jaded nuance of understanding the world. So it doesn't really take much in the environment to have that first adverse chip, right? The first adverse chip could be like, mommy, I want a hug. And not even realizing that mom's on the phone, doesn't see you and walks away, right? For all we know that that actually could be your initial impact of being abandoned. Even if we were to look back and we're like, mom, my mom never abandoned me. It's like, okay, well, 
that's not really how your brain functions. Right. Your brain is very literal. Mm-hmm. So when we go back to these moments with emotional addiction cycle, what was the very first emotion that was elicited from that first chunk of wood being chipped off? Mm-hmm. It's usually fear because it is a chip that is going to feel unknown and you don't have something to then define it against or compare it to. So for most people, it starts with fear. Mm-hmm. Then we move into what we refer to as a protective response, which is what sort of emotional response out of fear is then going to trigger our next set of behaviors, which are actually going to work in tandem with that adaptive response. How are we going to keep ourselves pulled back or adapted to that certain stimuli so that we don't get hurt again, right? But unfortunately, and this is why it's a three-part cycle, it doesn't really matter when we're a child what steps we try to take to protect ourselves because we're still powerless to our parents. So the cycle starts over again. This is where I crudely refer to emotion number three as our fuck it response, which is when you got hurt, you tried to fix it, and you still couldn't fix it, when that powerless feeling kicks in, you hit that fuck it button, which is when you default to usually your most intense and probably most chaotic of all the emotional responses, which is that fuck it response, which for most people is going to be anger. Um, The most common three-part system is going to be fear to anxiety to anger. Anxiety, even though most of us that have ever experienced anxiety would certainly not equate it with productivity, The process of anxiety is actually the brain attempting to be productive with you could do this or you could do that. Or maybe if you do this or you check that or you check this, then maybe you'll keep yourself safe. Yeah. You know, it's like going through and scanning files, looking for the exactly, you know, like how like anxiety is this, you know, like genius that comes in with these 3 million steps you could try to take to not set off the fear stimulus again, even though they're not rational. So it's not actually going to have a productive experience in our tangible world. Mm. Our brain gets highly addicted to anxiety because it feels like it's fixing things and it feels like it's being productive. Mm -hmm. So the most common cycle is going to be fear to anxiety to anger, because no matter what you do, eventually that anxiety is not actually going to be productive and all of the long laundry list of things that it gave you, especially if that turns into some sort of OCD type of behavior it's only going to lead you to then getting really pissed and feeling even more powerless or trapped or frustrated. So usually that's going to be an anger or frustration one. Right. It's really interesting. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the example that you do about wanting a hug because I, I feel like there's this kind of um, misunderstanding around these childhood traumas that we experience and a lot of adults think well i didn't have any trauma i lived a very good childhood i had you know a very safe home environment with two loving parents you know i don't need to explore anything there there's nothing there to check out and unfortunately um you know as you mentioned with that example the adult isn't going to equate that moment as being a traumatic event in their life that literally shaped how their adult behavior was going to be formed. So how do you um, articulate, like for the average person out there who thinks they lived this great life and they have no work that needs to be done from you know childhood traumas, how do you encourage them maybe to rethink that? Like, does that make sense? So- 
Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I would say some of my, some of the clients that I've had, and I've had a private practice for a long time, but in my four month course, we've had about 3000 students graduate to date. So that's a lot of people working four times a year, four months straight with that person. And all the time I have the people that are constantly self-sabotaging. Nobody ever wants to date me. Like it doesn't matter what job. I just like never really like my job, right? There's always some sort of present moment discomfort or stagnation. You're like, I just don't know where it come from. My childhood was perfect. Um, a lot of those people actually have some of the most ridiculous cycles. They're just really unwilling to look at them. And eventually once we uncover what it is, there's usually a moment where they laugh and then they're like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Um, like I said, no one gets out of the scot-free. It doesn't matter how perfect you think your childhood was. Everyone's brain has a pattern, period, full stop. And you know, maybe that pattern, I've seen this in many cases, is because your parents actually tried to protect you from everything. Mm -hmm. And your parents always told you that you were doing such a good job when maybe you weren't doing that good of a job, right? Maybe your biggest issue is that you're an adult and you actually have no idea how to push yourself or accurately self-measure. So you think you're always getting victimized by everybody when like maybe you kind of suck at a lot of stuff. Right. And your parents just led you to believe that you were so good and could do no wrong. They did you a huge disservice. So maybe you look back and you're like, Oh, well, my childhood was so great. My parents were so loving. Did they teach you autonomy? Did they teach you independence? Did they teach you self-resilience? Did they teach you how to generate your own confidence? Or are you constantly seeking validation from other people? Yeah. Those are usually the types of patterns that I see from the people that are like, my childhood was perfect. Here's the thing. If you're still experiencing something in your present life that is creating friction, conflict, you don't like it, you wish you could change it, it's coming from the pattern. It doesn't matter how perfect you think your childhood was. And I have had those tricky ones where it actually, the childhood wounding pattern can sometimes come from the dream state or some sort of sibling rivalry. So even if like childhood was great, there's some sort of um, compare and contrast to a sibling or they have recurring nightmares. Or for example, and we don't often think about this, what if at age three, your mom or dad was watching a horror movie your parents don't give you any sort of religious or spiritual context. You watch death for the first time and some gruesome thing and they're like, get out of the room, get out of the room. But then after that, you can't stop thinking about it. And then you're like, well, I don't even know what death is. And that thing just died. I could die. But then there's no place for them to inquire. What is death? What, am I going to die? What, and, and even think about bigger existential questions. And I think adults don't realize how much kids think about these things because they might not have the language to express that to you as an adult. Mm -hmm. But I've even seen wounds like that create anxiety and OCD where the parents like, I don't know, my kid's just a crazy person. I'm like, is there anything that you can think of like exposure to horror movies or like the death of an animal that wasn't handled well? Um, you know, the death of a, a grandmother or grandpa where you are so ingrained in your trauma that you're talking about it in front of your kid without any context. Mm -hmm. And then they're left to their own devices to then come up with their own reasoning or definition. Those things can all cause deep, deep problems. Yeah. Such fabulous examples. I absolutely love the one with the horror movies because with the work that I do um, with clients and a lot of times when we're doing work around anxiety, um, 
these individuals, you know, they'll really be suffering from anxiety. I do a lot with um, sober, like uh, alcohol and recovery, um, substance abuse, recovery and addiction. Anyway, um, when we're exploring things around anxiety and trying to get to the root of where this potential anxiety is coming, I'll, I'll often start, you know, asking probing questions and ask, you know, well, what were you watching before you went to bed? And they're like, oh, I, I love true crime and da 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 And they don't realize that their body is literally so addicted to needing to release that cortisol hormone to elicit that stress response that they are constantly putting themselves in these state of anxiety without even really, you know, understanding what's happening there. So I always think it's fascinating to kind of ask those probing questions and really find what that root thing is that's keeping them in that state. Yeah, I feel like, so my, I have a very specific moment because I actually suffered really bad anxiety until I was 20. Mm. And I actually know the exact moment that mine started. And I grew up Jewish in New York and there wasn't really any context about like God or spirituality or anything like that. Right. And I was, I think I was probably eight and we had just had family friends over. I'd been playing with their son. And then a week later, my dad randomly was like, you know, so-and-so's kid. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, he just raised his hand in class. He had a headache, died of a brain aneurysm, just like that. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and my dad's like, yeah, it's just so weird. And it was just like very conversational. My dad didn't think anything of it. But the thought process for me was, wait, an eight-year-old can die because he was my age. And I was like, so that means that anytime I have a headache, I could die. So I could die in school just thinking I have to go to the nurse. Mm -hmm. And it turned into this complete anxiety arc that was left unchecked and just got worse and worse and worse until age 20. So it can be something as simple as that, where you better believe my dad in that moment did not think that he was going to, you know, a 10 year cycle of anxiety for me in that one moment, but that's exactly what happened. Wow. Because I didn't have the opportunity to talk about it or process it outside of that. Mm -hmm. So as parents also, we've got to be really conscientious about what topics we're bringing up and what we're exposing our kids to and then also extracting from them what their brain defined that experience as so that you can potentially offer up other information or a way to pivot out of the fear message and into exposing some sort of new truth. Um, I do this all the time with my kids because if left to their own devices, they're probably going to lean into something that's very detrimental. Right. Yeah. That's such a great point to bring up. I have a brief interruption to bring today's special sponsor guest, our new partner, Waku. If you've ever tasted kombucha and found the taste to be a bit too, hmm, I don't know, strong, but you love the idea of improving your gut health, then you will love Waku. They have come up with six refreshing tonics that not only are tasty, but also help support your gut health. Waku is a sort of herbal tea with similar health benefits of kombucha, but not as strong of a taste. It's a delicious choice to cool down in the summer, and here's the best part. Waku is offering a free trial for a six-pack of tonics. That's right, you drink for free and only pay for shipping. Simply text the word DRINK, D-R-I-N-K, to 474747. 
and get a link to get your free trial pack. So text the word DRINK to 474747 for your free trial pack. So being that you kind of um, brought that up, I want to I wanna get your opinion or your advice on this or your thoughts. So I work specifically with a um, female clientele that suffers with autoimmune disease. So I got diagnosed at 18 with an autoimmune kidney disease, and that was kind of the start of the awakening process for me and trying to figure out what all of this stuff meant. And so with a lot of the individuals that I work with who get these really um, significant autoimmune diagnoses, things like, you know, MS and fibro and lupus and celiac disease and um, Crohn's and the list goes on. You know, once we get these autoimmune diagnoses, what I see happen um, with the, you know, this population is they get the diagnosis and then automatically they make assumptions based on what they have Googled, learned, read, been told by the doctor. And then they literally set their expectation in that moment for what is to be moving forward for them. And they literally attach themselves so much to the diagnosis that the diagnosis is truly the thing that's actually keeping them ill. It's not their, you know, their physical body or the disease itself. It's their thought process around adapting their identity to this diagnosis. And so a lot of times when we can work through that and get them to detach from the diagnosis, then amazing, amazing things happen. But I feel like this is kind of where the cognitive dissonance comes in. And can you talk to me more about what potentially is happening? I, I'm, um, I believe that you were diagnosed with lupus at a young age. Is that correct? So yeah, at, at 23. Okay. So, so what are your thoughts about this? So my thoughts about this are that we are indoctrinated from the earliest possible ages to look at Western medical doctors as gods and to take every single thing that they say at face value without questioning it. So I think in that same way of not questioning whatever is taught to you in a textbook, that then creates this pathway by which they give us a diagnosis and then we're like, oh, well, if one plus one equals two, then I guess I'm two now even though that's not actually the way it works. And I don't think people spend enough time realizing that a lot of these things that are pitched to us as concrete set in stone are really still theories that are, you can prove or disprove them based on manipulating data and doctors are not gods and doctors are often wrong. Um, in fact, I think you and I both know that the entire Western medical system is not only corrupted, but it's intentionally indoctrinating us to really the wrong point of view. Um, and I mean, if we're going to go there, that actually was intentionally done by the Rockefellers when they wanted to switch to petroleum-based medicines and make natural medicine illegal. So I think in a lot of ways, and I work with a lot of amazing doctors where I help them with their brands and expansion and things like that. Mm -hmm. So this is certainly not an affront to all doctors because I think there are some docs that have seen this in the system and been able to remove themselves from the system and learn how to operate in it while also operating outside of it. Mm -hmm. And those people I think have a lot to offer. But if somebody has only come up in the system and can't see their way out of it, 
they don't even realize that they're only operating with theories. They think that they're operating with facts and those facts are just not necessarily true in these cases. So if you can imagine that that can happen to a doctor that spent that many years having to regurgitate the facts over and over again, it makes sense that the average person would get a diagnosis and then just be ingrained to think, oh, well, whatever the definition is attached to this is what's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Especially as it relates to autoimmune disease, doctors don't know jack shit. So, and I, have, I too have worked with a lot of people with autoimmune disease. More often than not, autoimmune disease is tied to emotional issues and nutritional issues. Absolutely. You know this, this is what you do. Um, in fact, there's a whole pattern system where I can, if I see certain things, I'm like, yeah, do you also have this in this autoimmune condition? Yeah, how did you know? I'm like, not rocket science, okay? Um, even though a doctor would be like, we just, we don't know where this is coming from. It's like, okay, well, you don't think maybe it's like latent vaccine injury? I don't know, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so when we look at stuff like this, it is important for you to hear voices like Heather's or mine that let you know it's okay to get a second opinion. It's okay to get a third opinion from somebody that's not indoctrinated in the Western medical system because that's what it took for me, where I just had this gut feeling when I was having a doctor look at me and be like, well, you're gonna be on steroids for the rest of your life and this and this and this are gonna happen. It just so happened that I was in acupuncture school as this was happening. So I'd already been very exposed to, like the very first documentary we watched on the first day of acupuncture school was about how the Rockefellers basically destroyed medicine and tried to switch to all petroleum products. So I already was like woke in that way. So when my doctor was telling me this was going to happen to me, I was like, you know, thanks, but I'm going to go find another way. Be back soon. And at the time, my autoimmune disease was leading me to have pericarditis. So my doctor was like, you can't mess around with this. This is really serious. And I was like, I get that it's serious. I'm just I'm not going to go on steroids and then start a journey that has no end in sight because you're not actually treating the root cause. So I'm just not signing up for that right now. Went and found this like super hippie doctor at the time I lived in Hawaii. Um, His name was Dr. Thal. So Dr. Thal, if you're still alive, which you might not be, and if you're listening, which you might not be. um, Thanks, man. You really helped me out a lot. He had like Grateful Dead shit all over his walls and he was a Western doctor, but had clearly like bowed out of the system and realized what was happening there. And I basically was like, listen, I am a really regimented person. I have a lot of control over my body. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it and I'm not going to mess it up. And he was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. He did all kinds of stuff. And this would have been, Jesus, I mean, maybe like 2000, yeah, like 2003, Yeah, 2003-ish. So for us in the grand scheme of things, like pretty long time, especially as we're looking at the natural health world, Mm -hmm. where he like did like, you know, was looking at my live blood and like did all these heavy metals tests and all this crazy stuff. It was like my first food sensitivity test where he basically was like, oh, you're allergic to basically everything. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Which, you know this, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too, but when you're in that state, your body's also going to register as being allergic to like all of these things that when you get back to baseline, you might not necessarily be, but my body clearly was screaming for help at that point. Everything was wrong. Absolutely. So I was early 20s at this point. I was 23. I had like just turned 23. Okay. And I had clearly had it for a year. Like I think the, I remember having my first, what I now know 
was an episode with it at 19. Okay. So it was happening pretty consistently from 19 to 23. But I also was really stubborn at that point. It's like once I stopped having panic attacks and stopped being obsessed with being near a hospital in case I was going to die, I really deviated the other direction where I basically was like, doctors are evil. Like I'll only go to the doctor if I'm like actually about to bleed to death from like a severed limb. So I think I just was like trying to just go it alone for a few years and just wait it out. Um, I definitely, I was a raw foodist for a year, which definitely helped a lot, but I also went crazy. <laughs> That's neither here there. You were- My symptoms went away. I was, yeah. I was a competitive athlete up until probably like 19 and a half. Um, and then I injured myself. So my ski career was over at that point. Because as a, pract a practitioner, I do see a huge correlation between um, competitive athletes, you know, children who start competitive athletes at a young age, by the time they get into their early 20s, they have already, their nervous system is already so trained to be in such a state of constant stress that we see, you know, fertility issues and a lot of autoimmune um, start to present between that 18 and 25 mm -hmm. um, mark. And, and I think a lot of it has to do just with the, um, with the discipline. There's so much discipline. There's, well, you can speak to it specifically. Um, but do you feel that maybe that did play a role in the development of the lupus? So for me, competitive sports, and I, I, everyone's different, but competitive sports for me were actually the only time that I could be calm and relaxed. And I think when you have that anxiety pattern from something completely unrelated, like mine wasn't anxiety coming from like academic pressure or anything like that. It was all internal existential questions about like becoming literally obsessed with like, but I could die at any second. I don't want to die. Right. That's not a rational thought process. My anxiety attacks, I mean, I'm sure for some, they got pretty bad. Mine were really debilitating to the point where it was like multiple times a day, I'd be like convulsing. I wouldn't be able to see anymore. I couldn't hear. Um, it got to a point where I really, even in early college, I started college when I was 17, I couldn't even drive more than a few miles without pulling over to site hyperventilating. Wow. So actually for me, the only times that I was calm and relaxed were when I was focused on sports and it's because my mind wasn't idle, mm -hmm. right? So anytime there was focus on something, I had to do something, it was easy not to have a panic attack because my idle mind was not fixating on this other anxiety loop. Um, so for me, really competitive athlete stuff, that was actually very calming, gave me a lot of joy. Okay. And I think actually when this kicked in, it was that I didn't have that anymore. So then it was just like, well, now I'm injured and now like all I have is idle mind time. Right. So I think it just got worse and worse and worse. And then I had a, a pretty big epiphany and breakthrough right before I turned 20 where I never had a panic attack ever since. That's it was fun. definitely more of a spiritual moment. Mm -hmm. um, so from that point forward, the interesting thing is I think then I like the damage had already been done to my body. Mm -hmm. And that when I started to calm down, I actually went like my first six months ever without anxiety. And that's when my lupus kicked in. It was like, I let my body relax and then my body was like, okay, so on this really deep level, now we have this thing that's going to come out. And I'm like, oh, great. I just dealt with this thing. And now I, and I think it's because there was this suppression of it. Yeah. And then once I relaxed, 
it was going to have to come out one way or another because it was on the deepest levels of my body and it had to come out. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Let's talk about cognitive dissonance and what it means. Um, You know, I I think that there's a lot of people just don't understand. They just don't understand why what's happening to them when they're having these thoughts and then they're right back to embracing the old thoughts instead of trying Mm -hmm. to continuously have the new ones. So talk to the audience, explain kind of what cognitive dissonance is and how we can start to overcome it. So going back to the brain's number one job is to keep you safe and safety to your brain simply means repetitive or known cause and effect. Your brain is resistant to any new information that would force it to change its current rules and guidelines. Okay. One of the things that I think people don't really take into account, and it's one of the steps that we take in break method is sifting through all of the things I always, if, if everyone holds the image of imagining that you're a little kid holding like a laundry basket Mm -hmm. and as you're growing up, everyone around you is throwing certain beliefs either on purpose. They're like, Hey, catch this. Or you don't even realize that they're like tossing it over your shoulder because you're just, all you're doing is trying to live your life holding this basket. Your school puts things in there. Your mom puts things in there. Your grandma puts things in there. Your mom talking about your grandma somehow still puts something in there. So many of us get the media, right? A doctor's appointment, all these things, your religion, everything gets thrown in here. And most of it doesn't get thrown in with context. It doesn't get thrown in with directions. But all of these things go back and because your pattern has already been created by the time these things are getting tossed in there, every time your brain looks at something, it's looking at what's getting put in the basket through this pattern, right? So, and then it's getting defined and then it goes into reconcile with your pattern. It's not going against your pattern. Your brain's like, how can we fit this into the existing pattern? Okay. Right. So all of these things just keep reinforcing, reinforcing. Then eventually when we get older, we're inevitably going to run into things that don't match the things in our basket but because we have this rule operating it's like our brain puts on blinders so we're like that's not true that's not real or don't need to pay attention to that when this act of putting the blinders on is actually just our brain putting the brakes on and saying it's not safe to take in new information you already know how to keep yourself safe Mm -hmm. every step you take toward new information puts us at risk Mm-hmm. even though that risk is actually almost always in your best interest. I have a good example of this, and it will be easier for people that have seen the movie The Crudes. Okay. Have you seen the movie The Crudes? No, I haven't. Okay, so I'll give a little bit of an example of the setting and everything so that it makes sense. So The Crudes is probably like a Pixar movie or whatever, but it's about basically this last cave family that stayed alive. Okay. And just kind of like the dawning of the new age and like the earth is all breaking apart and shifting and they're like trying to hang on for dear life, right? So the dad, Mr. Crude, is so proud that he has kept his family alive, but he's kept his family alive by always keeping them in a cave, right? So there's this beautiful world out there with like vegetation and animals and oceans and beautiful sunlight, but the family always has to stay in the cave. And his number one rule is, fear keeps us alive. (laughs) Right. And he's like, everyone say it with me. Like we're alive because fear keeps us alive. And no matter what, it's like, 
he keeps having everybody run through the rules and he'll draw what's happening out there inside the cave so they can learn about it, but they never actually get to go out and have their own experiences until something happens and then they have to leave the cave. And then of course they get out there and they're like, what? You kept us in here when there's all of this? Like, I'd rather almost die every single day to get to actually experience life. So our brain is always functioning as Mr. Crude, where it's just like, no, 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 but you need to stay alive, you need to stay alive. Mm -hmm. But what it's doing is it's keeping you trapped in this repetitive cycle where it's like, I only know how to keep you safe within the walls of this cave, Mm -hmm. right? We know that if this person, you know, let's say is hierarchically above you, that you're likely to get rejected. So people please and act this way and then everything will be okay, right? Mm -hmm. It's giving you all these little rules of how to stay in your cave and stay safe. When really the life we want to live is outside of the cave, but our brain is going to do everything it can. Any single time there's like a crack of light or anything that's going to entice you, like maybe there's something else out there, your brain is going to make you experience cognitive dissonance. um, So it's when these two beliefs that conflict with each other have to meet head to head. When we look at them on their face, they would negate each other. So Mm -hmm. the brain is faced with but this one makes my rule untrue. And if I adopt this one, then literally my entire safety net, the entire cave goes away. Mm-hmm. So it's going to do everything it can to get you to fight against allowing in new information. Mm-hmm. When in reality, allowing in new information and having that stirring of cognitive dissonance is actually the number one sign that you're on your way out of the proverbial cave. And while it might not be safe, mm-hmm. it's Full of new experiences that will allow you to move out of this pattern rather than continue to only live with the pattern. Mm. So it really is the best thing you can do. And I always tell my students, once you get into this work, anytime you experience cognitive dissonance, once you actually understand what it is and what happens, you get psyched. Yeah. Like every time I get faced with something where I'm like, but that doesn't, I'm like, whoo, I'm going to read more, you know, yeah. I get super excited. Um, yeah. You should get excited when something butts up against your belief system, but it is virtually impossible to feel that way about it until you've done some preliminary work to understand what's really going on. Okay. So how does a person get started with doing that preliminary work? Where do they begin? So this is where it always gets tricky because I mean, I, that's what I teach. And from what I teach, there's a very specific sequence of events that have fire at a very specific time. I always refer to break method as, and it's kind of a, a, a bit of a sad way of explaining it and yet highly accurate. So if everyone thinks of a rat that's in an experimental maze where it doesn't realize it's in a closed system, but all of the doctors are looking at the rat in the closed system. We have to put you into a closed system in which we know what things we're going to poke and prod you to do so that you have to bump up against the wall and be like, ouch, that hurt. And it's like, okay, that hurt. What was the thought that happened there? And what did you define that hurt as? Okay, now turn left and go there. Ouch, that hurt again too, okay? What do these two things have in common? there has to be a way to walk them through this, this maze basically so that we can be collecting data, teach them how to bring the data together into a pattern and then see the way that pattern is operating in their day-to-day life and how they look at the future and how they reflect back to the past so that we can intentionally rewire it and remove all of those connections. So, you know, it's not as simple, uh, the simplest thing where, you know, if you just want to get started with one thing, 
And it's hard for a lot of people start shifting into observational mode. Instead of being your thoughts, try to observe your thoughts. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of irrational shit flying around up there that is not coming from you. I would say 70% of most people's internal dialogue has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So that's a really great first way to start. But outside of that, I was shown this very specific process, and it's hard for me to deviate from the process because it's just. I've seen it work without fail so many times over and over again. And anytime someone tries to like cut corners, they're like, oh, well, I can't just this or that. Or like, can't you just work with me privately? I can, but it's not the same because I can get you to the answers quickly, Mm -hmm. but then you can't take that with you for the rest of your life. So then it's kind of a wash for both of us because you're going to create new patterns that you now won't know how to do what I do so that you can stop them from happening because you'll now be dependent on me. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. First step, simplest step would be do your best to shift into observational mode. And I I feel like this is probably the hardest place for most people to go because we're so detached from ourselves. We're so distracted Mm -hmm. with, you know, every, with our autopilot system ruling us and not even, you know, being conscious of, of what we're doing in our daily life. This is a place I know as a practitioner, um, especially when we're focusing on trying to really get to the root causes. And a lot of times people are having digestive issues and they're really suffering and they think it's the foods that they're eating. And the reality is it's the environment in which they're eating their food. You know, that's mm-hmm. the thing that's having the, the very negative impact on them. Um, but for the individual to sit back and actually listen and observe themselves in these moments is just very, very challenging. Uh, yeah, we, we do have a variety of tools that we give people to be able to track these things because usually having a, a system to track it makes a lot of sense. And we do teach something called thought mapping, mm-hmm. which is relatively simple and really just about anybody can do it. Yeah. Um, I can share that toolkit with you if you want as a PDF. If oh, you want to fabulous. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. yeah. So do you believe that individuals can successfully cross the bridge and develop new thought patterns, uh, passages through self-guided work? Or do you think that it can be really challenging for us to do that on our own? everyone that I've seen try to do it on their own eventually the things that they think are rewiring it and the the directives that they're like I did all this and this is what's gonna work it's actually just another version of the same thing so unfortunately I wish it weren't the case but without somebody else there to be another set of eyes on your work, they're going to catch all the ways that your brain is trying to trick you into staying stuck or you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never successfully seen anybody really truly do that on their own without changing, but changing to a simple variation of what they previously were and being like, I'm totally different. It's like, you're totally exactly the same. Right. I think that's great advice. Um, It's important because I think the accountability piece, because this is such uncomfortable work and because our brain is trying so hard to not allow us to go there and put the work in, that accountability piece of having the direct guidance, um, for me, I feel is so important. I know in my own personal experience with being able to create behavior change, um, I became obsessed with behavior change after I became a clinical dietitian. 
I was working in the clinical world. I was working with diabetes and heart disease individuals. And each week they'd come in and I'd give them all of this amazing education. And then next week they'd come in and we'd talk about, you know, well, what changes did you make? And they'd be like, well, not. And I'd be like, oh, what have I signed up for? Like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And, and that's when I, you know, sought out a master's program and, and really focusing on behavior. Um, but I, I think it's so important that we have to understand what's happening here, that, that what's happening with our thoughts is literally having an impact on every single component psychologically and and from a physiological perspective, it all starts with our thoughts, which is, you know, why I named this podcast, Think Yourself Healthy, because we have the power. We are so, such powerful beings. The brain is so amazing. So how does a person start to rewire their emotional thought process? Is there um, a place to start other than just the observation? Well, you don't start with the observation when it comes to rewiring. So the process is the observation and data extraction, which the way we do it is, I always describe it in terms, if anyone's ever seen the first Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise has to sneak into Langley and they like lowering him down on a zip cord and there's like laser beams and heat sensors. That's basically what your brain is like when you're trying to extract information. And usually most methods of data extraction, what you're going to get is like the computer serving the file, but with the narrative attached to it and with all these excuses. So it's kind of skewing the data. Yeah. We learned how to go in the back door. So we're literally like Tom cruising into your brain, only grabbing what we need and then teaching you how to spread it out on the table and look at it come up with the pattern because then once we have whatever the pattern is, we go through a stage of testing hypothesis mm -hmm. in a variety of ways. Once we've done that, then we actually arrive at the conclusion. Once we have the conclusion, that's only the time that we can start rewiring. And the rewiring comes with, in many ways, doing a very specific opposite mm -hmm. of whatever those small finite things are in day-to-day -day life that will help your brain disprove that. Mm -hmm. and continue that process on for 30 days with no mistakes. Yeah. Um, at that point, usually it's, you know, I would say, honestly, most people, we don't expect anyone to have started the rewiring process until graduation in the 30 days beyond. Usually by the beginning of unit three, every single student's completely different. Like I did exit interviews all day yesterday and I had some students that I will admit in the beginning, I was like, God, you are you have your head so far up your ass. You're so annoying. I'm having such a hard time with you. And at the end, it was like, oh my God, you're like a normal functioning, badass member of society. Like, yes, this is why I do what I do. Where it says, if people can't get out of their own way to a point where they can't even answer a simple question without freezing up, it's, it, I mean, it just shows how much work they have to do. And when that person can then be like firing off answers and be super confident and all of a sudden completely different vibe. That's why I do what I do. And that's basically the days that I've had the last few days where it's just everyone's breakthroughs have been amazing. And they honestly, sh they're showing up that way in unit three. So three months in, they're already completely different. That's uh, so beautiful. So why aren't we teaching our children this early? Why is this not? I do. I teach my children this and my daughter and I, 
have been working on a parent-child way to do this because kids actually love it. Kids actually feel seen, acknowledged, they, they get it. Like we've spent so long embodying and repatterning ourselves with the same thing over and over again. Kids, they see these things and they're like, oh my God, I, this is a way for me to share what's going on up here. My daughter loves it. And she'll even have moments where she'll be like, my daughter's nonverbal. So she'll sign to me and she'll, she'll say mom because that's the only thing she can say. But she's like, we need to have a break talk. And I'm like, okay, like, let's go have a break talk. And I'll change hats and I'll be like, okay, I'm taking off my mom hat and putting on my break hat. And we actually have paperwork that we'll work through. Um, because she, so she just is a worrier overall. And my ex is my son's dad. And my son, whenever he goes with my ex, Mm-hmm. Sarai is like panicked the whole time and Zev was gone for example for two weeks to the lake and all of a sudden her anxiety was so bad over the two weeks because like a mom where you're like always worrying about your kid right. she does that not because of anything irrational but because she has so many experiences of not trusting the dad that uh-huh. that's all so she, in her mind she's like this is a perfectly rational <laughs> like I should be worrying right now why aren't you worried and she'll like get mad at me like why aren't you worried like this man is unreasonable. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know, but there's only so much we can do. So <laughs> I've actually taught her, because that's when things are, are really challenging, is when we look at it logically and we're like, technically, like this man is kind of irresponsible. Like we should all be a little scared right now. Um, but there's still processes by which you can help rewire your responses to those things, taking into account you know, what you can and can't do in that moment, what's realistic and what sort of outcome you're looking for. And with Sarai, trying to get her to understand that this is not within our control in this moment. So what we should be highly focused on is getting you not to waste energy in your own life Mm -hmm. with your heart racing, where you're worrying about this when there's literally nothing that you can do. So we've started to do a lot of break work for her to be able to get herself out of that process, which it can be hard for your brain because your brain's like, but somebody needs to worry. It's like, yeah, but is this actually serving us in this moment? And can we actually do anything with the information that our brain is giving us at this moment? And sometimes the answer is no, in which case you're just robbing your day-to-day life of energy that could be going somewhere else. Yeah. I like to use the analogy of it's like using a very, very high interest credit card. And every time you swipe it, you're just paying a crap load of extra that is completely unnecessary. So you better be very cautious of how you're using it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. I just, I, you know, I, I adore you as a person. I think that you are just so brilliant. Um, You're before your time, you, I mean, my God, busy, your name in itself is just so fucking cool. But all of the things you've done, you know, your early work with Dolores Cannon, your competitive sports um, experience, there's just really lots and lots of layers to you. I think you're a really interesting person. I I appreciate you so much coming here and sharing with us today. Um, I think that break method should just be a, you know, part of public school education, God, I wish. (laughs) You know, I want to mention, I have two daughters. My oldest is 24. My youngest is getting ready to turn 20. And 
as you know, I guess I probably started working on myself and changing these dynamics that I inherited um, several decades ago. And as I've started, you know, as I started doing the work and just making discoveries, there was some guilt and shame that came in about my parenting and how I've fucked them up. I'm like, oh my God, they already destroyed, they're ruined. They are completely ruined. It's too late. What am I going to do? But what I've seen over the years is that as I continue to put the work in myself and better my behaviors and my thought processes and the way I respond, they witness it and they are taking it in and they are actually putting work in on themselves as well without it being this very, um, we got to do the work. You know what I mean? It's just like, Mm -hmm. it's just a natural consequence of the actions that I'm taking, which I think is really exciting. I don't, I, I, I want the listeners to understand that no matter what age you're at, it's never too late to start doing the work because you are so worthy and deserving of truly being able to live your best life, step into alignment, have that autonomy, be able to, you know, believe in yourself and your beliefs and be able to um, embrace that and share the, the, the gifts and all of it with the world without, you know, fear of judgment. And, and yeah, fear. we have students in their sixties and seventies all the time in break. And one of the most important things to remember is that, and it's certainly a large chunk of what we do in unit three in break. Everyone inevitably has that moment where you're like, shit, I fucked up my kids. How do I undo this? The process is actually really simple because you just learned how that process happened to you. So if you can go back and acknowledge all of the thing, all of the inputs you would have given to your kids and give them a moment to re-reconcile and kind of re-co-create reality where you're like, hey, you were crazy. I totally did that to you. This is where it came from. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. Even just that one conversation, it can make them go back and like delete the file and put in a new file from that point forward. So I've seen relationships, even with adult children, completely get healed because all their brain is looking for is for the parent to actually own up to those inputs that created that negative output so they can redefine it and be like, oh, okay, so that wasn't me. I wasn't just crazy. Because a lot of kids leave that experience just feeling like they're the one taking crazy pills because the parents are always the parents know best but when you can go back and actually offer up some truth and allow them the chance to explain what happened for them in their head during that time you can completely change your relationship with your kids really fast absolutely i i think that not only do you have the ability as the parent to heal you have the ability to heal them and just i'll give you a quick quick example of how this actually presented in my life. I went to um, Mount Shasta 2018 and spent like 16 weeks in isolation. I wanted to do some serious work. It was the first time in my entire life that I had ever been alone. And so as I was going through the process of these 16 weeks and really putting the work in, one day I was sitting in front of the mirror putting makeup on and this little voice comes and says, you know how you think all of your abandonment issues are from your dad and him not showing up and being present? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, what if we told you something different? And I was like, what? I'm listening. All right, bring it on. And basically this voice goes on to share with me that when I was nine months old, my mother went through a very traumatic experience. She was pregnant with my younger brother, married to my dad, who's a drug and alcoholic. Her brother got killed Her mother was codependent, her father was an alcoholic, and she had an eight-year-old brother. 
So she had all of these things that she had to be responsible for, and she was just absolutely traumatized. So when she would get home and I, you know, need to pick me up to nurture me, feed me, she didn't have the ability to do it. And so she wasn't able to meet my needs as that nine month old infant. And that's where the abandonment really began. And so my mom came up at the end of my uh, 16 weeks in Mount Shasta. And she historically has always been this very defensive individual where you can't really get any kind of admission. So I pretty much set myself up for, I'm just going to share this information. I didn't expect to get any kind of validation. And so I'm sharing the story as I did with you. And she looks at me and she said, yes, that's exactly what happened. I was so exhausted. I felt so terrible. I felt so guilty every time I looked at you. And it was like in that moment, she was releasing all of the shame and guilt that she harbored from not knowing how to co-regulate her own emotions during that time, much less meet my own. And it was truly a very beautiful experience. I'm so grateful to have had that kind of awareness. And it did change the dynamic of the relationship. It allowed me to release the anger and the resentment and all of the things that I was harboring for my circumstances growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, thanks for letting me share that. But that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important for people to realize that often patterns do start that early. So then you can see now where you already have that abandonment pattern, which then you perceived your experience with your dad through that. So it only deepened it and anchored it in even further. So, and that's usually what is the case for most people. And then as an adult, I, I embraced it by picking emotionally unavailable men to justify that I wasn't worthy and deserving of being loved. Yeah. So yeah. Um, well, gosh, thank you so much for being here. Um, I think break method is something that the entire world needs. So how can the listeners get their hands on break method and be a part of this monumental mission that you are on? Okay. So you can go to breakmethod.com. We have, I'm doing an interactive intro course that starts on September 30th. Okay. The first time that we're, so essentially our course is four months long. Okay. It is certainly a large time investment. Mm-hmm. We do find ways to help you make it self-paced and navigate through it. However, it is four months. There's no way around that. So what we've done is we've created a, an intro program Okay. That's six weeks. It's called the reset. And what it does is it teaches you how to go into and prepare for that four month course so that you're able to already be in the flow of, of learning, of having things printed out. So it's like you're, it's like going to prep school before school. Okay. Um, but it also will teach you all of the intro foundational arcs so that should you choose to not continue into winter semester, um, you can also do like a, an exit packet there and graduate and then just kind of go it on your own from that point. So that's going to be a six week course. It is all with me. It will all be interactive lectures. Um, and that's called the reset. So okay. that's our intro course. And if you decide to continue on to winter semester, which will start January 15th, everything you paid for the reset can just be pushed into the winter semester as your deposit. Oh, so you wouldn't have to pay double. It's kind of like, If you know that this is something you want to do, but you're intimidated or you don't quite have the funds yet, Mm -hmm. 
put your money where your mouth is, get to work for six weeks, prove to yourself that you actually can be an academic and can go back to school again, and then roll that right into some New Year's resolution. So you'd be crazy if you didn't take advantage of that. Yeah. And I will, I'll give your listeners a discount code. We're not doing any discount codes for the reset, but I'll, I'll give your listeners a discount code for that. So yeah, I would focus right now on if you can jump in and do the reset, you absolutely will not regret that. And then in January, if you're ready to continue on into the full four month course, you can apply that money as a deposit to winter semester. That's fabulous. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you. And what a brilliant idea. I love it. I love getting them to invest initially to see, okay, how much do I really want this? Yeah, I can, I can change somebody's life. We've done like week long challenges or people are like, holy shit, it's like day seven and I'm a different person. So give me, give me six weeks and there's like 0% chance you won't be continuing on for winter. I can imagine what's possible with 16. It really is just, you know, so many people have not been enrolled in a school format for so long that I think the idea of going into something for four months, like, oh, so much work, I suck at school, or I'm not a fast reader, or whatever the, whatever the process is internally, use this shorter, slower paced six weeks to prove to yourself that that's all BS, and that that's just your brain not wanting to push through cognitive dissonance, so. I love that. Thanks for joining us on the Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Make sure you leave a review and let me know what you think. I love reading your feedback. Come hang out with me on Instagram at Heather Duranja. And don't forget to take a screenshot that you're listening to the podcast and tag me. I love to share it. See you on the next episode.